you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them and open up to the book of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. We began uh, studying through this book of beginnings early in the summer. We have made our way through the opening chapters and we're coming now to the close of kind of the first major section. So we're going to be looking in chapter 11 this, this morning and then we're going to take a break for the month of December before we uh, come back to the book in January to study the life of Abraham. Um, so we're coming to the close of the first uh, section of this book. And, and before we get into the text and read it, just to kind of catch us up on what has been happening in the chapters just previous. We spent many weeks studying God bringing judgment upon humanity because of their rebellion in sin against him and bringing that, that judgment in the flood, but preserving a remnant of faithfulness through Noah and his family. We saw this preservation and then Noah's response following the flood to worship God. And then we studied last week that although God brought judgment and cleansed the earth from sinful mankind, there was still in the heart of man a tendency to rebellion and towards sin. We saw the individual sin in Noah's family. And then we saw last week the this the spreading of the nations uh, across the land and being divided up in the descendants of Noah's uh, family. And this morning, uh, in chapter 11, we're going to get the story um, that describes the why for that dispersion. So let, let's read the first nine verses of chapter 11. This is God's holy, authoritative Word for his people. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them come let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech so the lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. 
May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning for his people. This text, uh, it comes immediately following a historical description of Noah's descendants and the dispersion of all people and all languages. And so at first reading, it can seem like there's a little bit of confusion here. Why are we reading verse 1, that the whole earth had one language, when in chapter 10, we just heard about all the nations and the spreading of all the people. A couple uh, contextual things help us to understand this. First, um, different cultures, particularly the ancient Near East, uh, is not concerned in storytelling the way that our Western culture is so concerned. When we tell stories, we tell them in chronological order, don't we? Because we all know that we have been retelling a story and someone else who has been there is standing next to us and we quickly get corrected when we tell something out of order. The Bible's not so concerned with that. Yes, the Bible does record for us historical events, but the Bible's burden is not necessarily the chronology of history. The Bible's burden is the revelation of God. of of knowing who God is, understanding his heart and plan, and therefore understanding of something of who we are. And so this story lands on us as an understanding for all that just, we just read in chapter 10. Why these different nations? Why these different languages? Why this scattering? And so Moses The author of our text records this story in in somewhat a poetic form for us to understand the why behind this scattering. It's also very helpful for us to grasp the when and the why of the writing of this text. Moses, the author, records this for God's people right before they are about to enter the land of promise. A generation that has seen the power of God displayed in delivering a particular people out of captivity and through the wilderness and now about to to send them into a land of promise. And so Moses records all of the, the history of God's dealing with his people and revealing of who he is so that this people might know the God they are called to love and follow in the land of promise. God's word is a teaching for his people to live for him where he calls them. So Moses records for us what we have read and maybe quickly observed, this observation that post-flood, after God's cleansing, The human heart has not changed. Man is in pursuit of his own pride. And as as these people are about to enter the land of promise, Moses knows that they will face temptations. The people of God will be tempted to plan and plot their own ways. They will be tempted by the godless ideologies of the nations around them. They will be tempted to drift away from the purposes of God, to come up with better plans, better ways of security. 
They will be tempted to assimilate, to lean on their own understandings. They, there will be subtle drift from the plans and purposes of God. And so Moses records for them this account of, of God stepping in and intervening the plans of man to reveal his plan and his purposes. So this text was meant to reveal for God's people then the glorious plan of God's redemption. And this text is meant to reveal to God's people now the glorious plan of God's redemption to reveal his awesome glory. The ambitions of rebellious humanity will always be thwarted because God is in control. God will continue to unfold in history his plans and his purposes. He did it then and he will do it today. And so the bringing of judgment and confusion to hold back the pride of mankind is to reveal that God will have his way for his glory. This is the main point of this text, the main point for us to understand today, that God will judge the prideful ambition of man and he will carry forth his plan of glory. The question is, will we join him? That's the question. Will we join him? I want to look at this in, in two parts this morning. The first section, verses 1 to 4, reveal to us, and we're going to study it a little bit, the pride of men. We see immediately that the whole earth had one language, the same word. And then in verse 2, it says that the people migrated from the east. Now, we have already seen this language twice in the book of Genesis and we'll continue to see it. Whenever we have this mention of people moving toward the east or from the east, this mention of the east, we saw it when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden because of their sin. They were sent east out of the garden. When Cain killed his brother Abel, he was condemned to be a wanderer and he wandered in the east. Anytime the Bible mentions, particularly in these beginning chapters, of moving east, it is a move away from God. Away from God and his plans and his purposes. So this people migrated from the east and they found a plan in the land of Shinar and they settled there. There's the problem. Again and again, in these beginning chapters, we have seen God orchestrating and planning things for and calling man to be spread abroad, to be fruitful and multiplied, to be ab ab abounding in the earth. God has established mankind. He has, he has cleansed the earth and then set Noah. And then we saw again in uh, chapter 9 verse 7 that he called even Noah's descendants after the judgment of the flood to be fruitful and multiply and to increase greatly abroad across the land. But man decides to settle. To move away from the plans and purposes of of God. These individuals reach a consensus together that their plans and their ambitions were better than the will and plan of God. And so they plot based on their own ideas and beliefs rather than God's commands. 
And we have to see, when we read texts like this, here's the danger. The Bible can often be so blunt with the folly of mankind, right? And we can read it and we can go, these people have no clue. Why would they do that? It's so foolish. It's so obvious that they're acting in folly. Listen, the bluntness of the Bible with the foolishness of man, be careful that it doesn't let us become arrogant and self-righteous. The bluntness is meant to be a mirror. It's meant to reflect and cause us to examine our own hearts. Why would these people plan against the ideas, the beliefs, the commands of God? And this is so often just the logic of men. When man-centered ambition is left unchecked, we think we know better than God. Now, we don't say it like that, but there is subtle, logical reasoning of why doing it this way, I know God says this, but I think, I think this will just work out a little bit better. And surely these individuals moving together Migrating across the land are discussing ways in which they can improve their lot. And they begin trusting in their plans instead of God's call on their lives. It demonstrated that they were set on self-preservation, self-protection, and self-exaltation. And so rebellion is what they are left with. They rebel against God's good command to be scattered in this case. They wanted to rebel against the plan and purpose of God because we see that clearly when they say, lest we be dispersed. They know that God's plan was for them to be dispersed. They wanted to receive glory for themselves. In the text it says, let us make a name for our Selves. This is the reasoning and the logic. This subtle drift that we can plan and plot ways for our security, for our safety, for our prosperity that we know better than God. See, we must see that the heart of these men is in a state that our hearts are in as well. The heart of these individuals gathered together with man-centered ambition is the same heart condition that we all suffer from. I don't know any of us that have decided to build a tower in our backyard to make a name for ourselves rather than God, but there are subtle ways that we do it in our lives. Decisions we make, choices to obey, to to subtly drift away from God's commands, to, to compromise. Well, maybe God didn't mean it just like that. And a little bit is okay. Little compromise leads to great rebellion against God. We've been reminded that even after the flood, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. There is a brokenness in the heart of man. And 
ambition matched with that brokenness leads to this rebellion. So we have to understand, to fully grasp what's going on here, we we need to know something about glory. We need to understand something about the reality of glory. We are told in the beginning of our Bibles that man was made in the image of God. Which means that we were made different from the rest of creation. That mankind was made with specific capacities, different from all all the rest that God had created. Man was made with the ability to reason and to comprehend, to innovate and to pursue. Man was made for the capacity with, with, with deep compassion and longings and striving. We were made with profound capacities to value, unlike the rest of creation. We were inbuilt with the ability to see the value of something and to pursue it. In other words, we were made for glory. We were made for glory, to recognize in something the splendor and the magnificent and to see something as valuable and to be attracted to it. That is, that is what it means partly to be made in the image of God. In the image of the glorious one, we have the capabilities to receive and understand and pursue what is glorious. It's the reason that thousands of people huddle in a stadium to catch a glimpse of a game-winning catch. It's in us. Or it's, it's, it's why we may pause when we hear the, the beauty of a, of a classical piece of music. When we hold our breaths at the anticipation of the Olympic gymnasts, just wanting them to stick the landing for the victory. Where hairs on our arms can rise up when the vocalist hits that note at the crescendo and leaves us stunned. That's why people travel to the Grand Canyon, to stand on the edge and be drawn to something so much bigger. We were made for glory. It is embedded in us, in God's imageness in every one of us and has built inside of all humanity an ambition to chase glory. Human beings made in the image of God are made ambitious for glory. We want to see it. We want to behold it. Our hearts are hardwired to chase after glory. And herein lies the problem that we see in this text. The whole stage of history made by God is set for glory, namely glory in God himself. To be received by the ones who are to be glory chasers. But, as we saw in chapter 3 of this book, the fall of mankind has hijacked our hearts. It has broken the hard wiring that God embedded in us. 
when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good commands for them, they chased after glory in another place. They went looking elsewhere for glory besides God himself. Sin in the hearts of men has stolen away not our capacity for glory, but has misplaced its aim. And there is where these people lie and what we find in our hearts as well. Verses 1 to 4, the pursuit of man-made glory is in these broken hearts, the hardwiring disassembled, and they pursue glory not in God himself, but in themselves. The aim of glory is twisted. Ambition built into man for glory now turns to pride. And now man-centered ambition is cosmic sedition. We worship no longer the one we were made for, but we worship ourselves. God sees the unity of man's sinful ambition play out before him and he brings judgment upon it because God is passionately opposed to pride. God is passionately opposed to pride. Why is that so? Because it is the hijacking of the hearts that he has made for his purposes. Namely, that all of creation would be about his glory. And so pride is its cosmic treason. It's rebelling against the plan and purpose of God. The pride of man, it, it stiff arms God and his glory. The Bible says in, in Proverbs 8 that God hates it. C.J. Mahaney in his book Humility asks this question. Why does God hate pride so passionately? Here's why. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. He goes further and, and sums it up simply. Charles Bridges says it this way. Pride is contending for supremacy with God. Whenever man stiff arms God in his glory and pursues selfish ambition, it is contending for supremacy with God. Now here's the subtle reality of this sin of pride. We don't say it that way. We don't, we don't walk in it that way. We know pride exists. We know, oh yes, that's the common struggle of everyone. Everyone has a little bit of pride that they need to confess. Humility's hard to pursue. But rarely do we identify the, what we say, uh, it, mine's not that bad, look at them over there kind of pride. We, we don't put a finger on it and say, it's contending for supremacy with God. It's stealing the throne that was never meant for us. 
See, the reflective purposes of this story is so that God's people may be equipped to examine their own hearts and see where there is contention for supremacy with God and to flee from it. This is what happens. Our our man-centered ambitions, if left unchecked, will always lead us away from the plans and purposes of God. It will always lead us away. So here's what we need to ask ourselves. What are you most ambitious about? What do you most value? What are you spending time on? What are you spending money on? What are you thinking about the most? What are you planning for the future? What are you chasing after? Is your plans for security, your ideas for comfort, your thoughts for what to build? Is all of that, ask how much of it has to do with making a name for God or making a name for yourself? Maybe we don't all want to be famous, but we all have ambitions that have hijacked our hearts. And God will respond to that just as he has responded here. Let's look at the second half of this text. The plan of God. We've seen the pride of man and now the plan of God. Verse 5 is really the pinnacle of this whole text. It's set up to draw our attention to verse 5. And then the following verses is really a deconstruction of the first half of the text. Verse 5 says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Where the ch- which the children of man have built. Listen, there is no subtlety to the, the satire and the, the irony of verse 5. It's meant for us to, to, to giggle a little at how foolish man-centered ambition is when it's brought before the Almighty God. Man has gathered together in unity, all speaking the same language, joined together with with broken hard wiring to plot and to plan and to build this magnificent city and this tower that will reach to the heavens. And it is the pinnacle of man's ability at this point in history. And God comes down to see what he's up to. Whenever we have language in the Bible that that gives God uh, man qualities, this, this anthropomorphic description of God that, that God is seeing and coming down to look. It's not for us to understand that God is man-like. It's for us to understand that God observes everything in the universe and has complete knowledge and is in supreme authority. It reveals to us an understanding of who God is. This point of God coming down to see is is to mock the efforts of man-centered ambition. It's to make fun of their, their coming together to build for their own glory, to make a name for themselves. And we see in verse six that the Lord says, behold, they are one people, they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. 
When the Lord speaks that nothing is impossible for them, it's not that the Lord is reacting to this impressive construction project. And his reaction is like, "Uh uh-oh, I better do something about it lest they actually reach the heavens. That's not what's going down here. God is not overly impressed and therefore a little bit concerned with the efforts of mankind. What this is saying is nothing is impossible for the complete depravity of mankind joined in unity. They will make an utter ruin of themselves. Pride left unchecked will only leave mankind utterly ruined. Their capacity to build and their unity in rebellion means there's no level to the perversity and rebellion that they could reach. And so God intervenes. He sovereignly comes down and he plots to bring confusion to their language. That no one will understand one another's speech. In verse 8, that the Lord would disperse them over the face of all the earth, and so they leave off the building project. The city and the tower is not really the center of concern in this text. The center of concern is God carrying out his plan of redemption. Man will not disturb the plan and purpose of God. God will have his way. He will carry it out. And he will not allow his glory due to him to be misappropriated by man. John Calvin says it this way. God cannot bear with seeing his glory appropriated by the creature in even the smallest degree. So intolerable to him is the sacrilegious arrogance of those who, by praising themselves, obscure his glory as far as they can. This text is not about a city and a tower. It's not necessarily even about languages and unity. It's not necessarily even about scattering people abroad. All of those things fit together. This text is about glory. God's glory, his glory alone, and his plan and purposes for his glory to be known, to be seen, to be valued and treasured and to be pursued. And he will not allow the pride of man to steal the glory that is due him and him alone. So the Lord will carry forth his plans. And so he disperses them over the face of the earth. This is the summation in verse 9. And again, this is meant to mock how ridiculous it is that the creature would worship and pursue glory over the creator. This is why the name was called Babel. This is both a mockery of the efforts of this people and also a mockery of the nation of Babylon that throughout our Bibles from beginning to end becomes the picture of sinful rebellion and the arrogance of man. 
Babylon comes up in our Bibles again and again, all the way into Revelation until it is finally dispersed and wiped away from the face of the earth because it is always trying to steal glory that is only due to God. And so God, in mock irony, labels it Babel, which means confusion, which is the heart of the reality of this text. For us to be focused on man-centered ambition, pride in ourself means we're confused and our hearts are broken. They need to be restored to the purposes for which they were made. God says in Isaiah through the prophet that he has glory and he will not give it to another. Listen, God is absolutely jealous for his glory. And yet, even in this text, that is a clear judgment on the pride of mankind. We see, we see in this that God is full of mercy and love. Because God is not so jealous for his glory that he will not exclude mankind from it, but he is committed to a plan to redeem mankind into it. When we read this, and if we're reading our Bible straight through, we have to think, are you kidding me? He just flooded the whole earth because of sinful pride and rebellion. And now you want to build a tower to make a name for yourselves? That was, that was not that long ago. God does not come down to this sinful rebellion and we expect that he will annihilate humanity. Why bother anymore with their foolish rebellion, their twisted hearts and backwards glory chasing? He doesn't annihilate them, but he humiliates them. He humbles them and preserves his plan to redeem mankind into his pursuit of his glory. Listen, the tower to reach the heavens, it displays the efforts of man in his arrogance to reach the heights of God. The condescending of God displays that the Lord makes a mockery of all man-centered ambitions. But God, in amazing mercy, he doesn't annihilate man in his display of pride. He rather, he humiliates them and stops from further folly and he carries forth his plan of redemption. Man cannot build himself up to God. Rather, God in humility condescends to man in order to bring him to himself. God, in verse 9, says, disperse them over all the face of the earth. It's a continuation of God's plan from the beginning to be fruitful and multiply. Why is that God's plan from the beginning that mankind would, would spread abroad on all of creation? Because God's glory is so big that the ones who were made to value and treasure it must be dispersed over all that he has made. 
He must have his glory in its fullness. And so his plan will not be thwarted by the pride of men. And he will redeem from mankind a people who will see and know and value his glory and chase after that instead of their own. And so God is willing to condescend to humanity to redeem for the purpose of his glory. And we see in our Bibles as we continue to read that there is an ultimate display of God's commitment to his plan of redemption, an ultimate display of condescending that God himself in the person of Jesus would condescend to humanity and take on flesh, would become a man and walk the path of humility to show us the path to real, true glory. You see what God does here? He, he flips the ambitions of man on its head. This, this people that migrated and settled and built, their, their plan is, is to reach to the heavens by building themselves up in selfish ambition. And God says, no, no, that's not the way to heaven. The way to heaven is not for man to reach the fullness of himself and to achieve it, rather to come to an end of ourselves and to humbly receive it. The way to heaven is not man-centered ambition and achievement. The way to heaven is humbling dependence on God to save us, to rescue us. We cannot raise ourselves up to God. Rather, we must be brought low. And in a posture of humility, that is where we meet the Savior. This is the message of the gospel. The gospel is so offensive to the pride of mankind. It is, the gospel is the antithesis of the pride of men. God, the one who is worthy of making a name for himself, condescends to mankind in humility in order to rescue him and to make a folly of his pride. Listen, this, this is the story of my heart being transformed forever. As a young man, I regularly thought and dreamed and expected that one day I would be something of substance. That one day my life would really matter that others would see, that others would know. I didn't know what I was going to be, what I was going to do, but I knew it was gonna be something great. I knew I was meant for that. It wasn't until my early 20s when I was waiting for that to come and just had this overwhelming sense that was burdening my heart that I was purposeless that my life had no, no, real, no real ambition to move forward in, no real drive, no real something to chase after. And I was humbled by God, humbled to see that 
yes, my life was purposeless because all the while my ambition was for me and me alone. Until God opened my eyes and brought me low and there I met one who was worthy of ambition, one who was worthy of praise, the one, namely, who died for me to rescue me from selfish ambition and bring me to himself. God will judge and stop the pride of mankind. He will carry forth his plan of redemption. So how should we respond to this? Seeing that God is wholly committed to this and we are desperately seeking at times to make a name for ourselves, we need a heart that is transformed. We need the gospel to fix the broken wiring of our hearts. We need to again and again see the true source of glory. And this becomes a daily pursuit. We daily need to identify the subtle temptations of pride in our lives by daily taking ourselves again and again to the source of true glory. We observe and see the wonder of the gospel and God saving us through Jesus Christ and trusting wholly on him, depending on God alone to save us and to bring us to heaven. And that kills pride and raises true glory in our hearts. See, God will carry this plan out. Ultimately, for the renown of his name. Here in this text, we see God's judgment against pride. It, it scatters humanity in disunity. And it is the creation of world languages. No longer will man be able to pursue his ambitions in full unity. But from now, this point on, he will be disunited in his pursuit of himself and will be confused in language. But that will not be the end of the story. God promises to bring a unity to a redeemed people to understand true glory. It is prophesied by the prophet Zephaniah at a time that will come where speech will be changed to a, a pure speech. And they will call upon the name of the Lord. And then we see in Acts chapter 2 in uh, Pentecost where the Spirit descends on the believers. And they are filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And all that were around began to understand one another. And they were united in understanding the what? The praises of God and the wonder of his name. In Acts chapter 2, it is an, actually a reversal of Genesis chapter 10, where we have the description of all the nations being dispersed with their separate languages, and then the Spirit of God descends on his people, and all those nations can understand each other in the praises of God. And there is a day coming we have recorded for us in the end of our Bibles in Revelation, a day that John records for us. And he says, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, 
standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Yes, God will have his glory. He will be renowned. The question is, will you be amongst those who are singing that song? Our hearts need to be fixed and God is graciously giving us the gospel message of Jesus Christ to transform our hearts so that we sing that song above all others. May we glory in that and that alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that you have not left us in our own ambitions. You have not left us as we deserve, pursuing everything else, pursuing ourselves, and not seeing the worth and value of you and you alone. You have given us a plan of redemption. You have provided for us a means of salvation in Jesus Christ, in his death and life and resurrection. And if we wholly trust in the good news of the gospel, there is transforming work that your spirit means to do, that we would sing the song of true glory, the song that you deserve. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us that you would help us to behold not ourselves, but to behold you as the psalmist says, not to us, not to us, but to you be glory alone, O oh God. May we be a people that behold our God and stand in awe and pursue the ambitions of your glory above all else. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.